Welcome to Embargoed, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and well-groomed co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? I got a haircut for the impending summer because it's a beautiful day here in Washington. <laughs> impending summer in exactly, okay. exactly. Let's let's think positive. Let's hope we make it that far. But yeah, that's exactly. a, that's positive thought. That's what we count on you for. Um, so, well, you're looking good, by the way. Uh, so, welcome to Embargo, everybody. Thank you for joining us once again uh, in our first uh, our first February episode. Uh, we're still trying to sort of re- recover from the shockwaves of January, I think. But of course, as I as we predicted or alluded to last time, I'm sure something crazy will happen, and in fact, it did. So we're going to spend a good portion of today's episode talking about a military coup. Thankfully, not one that took place in the United States, but one that is, I think, hugely consequ- consequential for the U.S. and for the early days of the Biden administration and uh, his uh, their foreign policy agenda. So, um, not surprisingly, we're going to spend a lot of time on that. Um, before we get there, though, uh, all the normal uh, introductory notes. So we're not here giving legal advice. We're not revealing or discussing any confidential information. All views that you hear on this podcast are mine and Tim's. If you don't like them, blame us. Uh, and of course, you or, can find, or you or, can blame the voting machines. <laughs> I would not suggest that because you may be sued for you may be sued for defam- defamation Two, if you blame the voting machines with no evidence. That, just seven. FYI billion dollars yeah, you can just FYI. so don't blame the voting machine. don't blame the voting machines um but uh you can find us anywhere uh apple google uh spotify stitcher overcast youtube uh if you like the pod please subscribe um thank you as always to our loyal listeners we uh appreciate it we've heard we've gotten some very nice feedback um over the last um couple of weeks uh, from the last uh, couple of pods we did, the one at the end of last year, the, the first couple from this year. Uh, we do greatly appreciate that. Uh, I would also be remiss if we didn't give a quick shout out to our friend Tom Fox at the Compliance Podcast Network. We're very grateful to Tom and uh, the folks at the Compliance Podcast Network for making Embargoed part of the family, for making the other Mill and Chevalier podcast part of their family. Uh, we appreciate that support, and we uh, we love everything about what Tom's doing over there. And and so, just a quick shout out and thank you, Tim. And and thank you, Tom, for the lovely uh, embargoed mug that you sent us recently. Um, on the next episode, I hope to to drink some coffee from it, but it was actually very cool. So thank you for that too, Tom. We now officially have branded embargoed swag. So exactly. if you if you want to exactly. hit us up on Twitter or email us, we can. We can see if we can hook you up with some of that. We, we've arrived. <laughs> um, so uh, with, without further delay, let's just jump into the, the roadmap for today and then we'll get started. Uh, I think, so not surprisingly, as I already alluded to, topic number one, which we're going to spend quite a bit of time on, I think, is the military coup in Myanmar uh, and all of the various I- implications that that has. This is, it's hard to believe this was this week that this happened. This, we're recording this on February 5th. This happened on Monday uh, and there's a lot that's already happened, um, but there's still, a, we're, in, we're in very early days there, so there's a lot that more to come, and we'll talk a lot about, uh, about that. Uh, we're going to then pivot to Venezuela to check in with Venezuela and some early 
pronouncements from the Biden administration regarding Venezuela and what the approach might be there. Uh, we're then going to move in our final main topic of the show to a lawsuit that was just filed a few days ago uh, by the Chinese company Xiaomi relating to its uh, designation as a, a Chinese a communist Chinese military company. Uh, interesting lawsuits. The first we've seen, uh, I believe this is the first one that we've seen relating to uh, EO13959 and the DOD list that first popped up uh, you know, after 20 years uh, sitting on a shelf first popped up this past summer. Uh, so that's an interesting one. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And then in the lightning round, we're going to hit two topics really quick. Uh, one is the situation in Yemen and some changes that have already happened to the U.S. approach there, which we, I think, foreshadowed and anticipated on our last episode. And then uh, the last topic is a favorite of ours, which we don't talk about uh, quite as often as we might like to is CFIUS and sort of what's happening with CFIUS and a recent article uh, in SWAT the, teams in the SWAT Wall Street. Teams. Yeah, a recent article in the Wall Street Journal that sort of highlighted uh, sort of a, a new enforcement trend with CFIUS that we want to just touch on very briefly. So, uh, so that's all I have. Tim, any final thoughts before we um, start breaking down the coup in uh, Myanmar? No, I mean I, I think we've had a. a you know, a couple of weeks to assess the new administration and, and they've already had their first big challenge, which we're going to talk about in a second. But I think it's 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 a new day. It, it, summer is coming and uh, springtime is just on the cusp. So we'll see how how they how they handle these challenges. But I, I, they definitely have a very different approach. Yeah, I think to frame that. So let's do, let's get right into it with topic number one here with respect to Myanmar. So for for anybody living under a rock, quite frankly, around the world who hasn't been following this, uh, on Monday of this week, uh, on February 1st, there was a military coup in Myanmar, a bloodless coup, or a largely bloodless coup, it appears. But the uh, the democratically elected leadership, uh, a number of folks were uh, arrested and, and taken from power, and the military is now uh, firmly asserted power over uh, the country of Myanmar. Um, there's a lot of background here that we'll touch on briefly, but this is obviously a very long story in Myanmar. We're we're going to touch on a little bit of that, but I think there are, there are just so many interesting angles now to to game out here in terms of the geopolitics of this and the implications and sort of the the chessboard of the U.S., China, Russia, others, and how they how they sort of react to this. And then, of course, just from a pure sanctions perspective, uh, you know, we, the U.S. obviously had a program, very, a long-standing program for, I think, 20 years, basically, dates back to the Clinton era when the first sanctions were imposed on on Bur what was then known as Burma, uh, and they were fully removed in uh, 2017, pursuant to some actions that had been set in motion in, in the, the last, you know, uh, months of the Obama administration. And that was all, all of those steps that were taken to, to um, unburden uh, Myanmar of US economic sanctions were relating to the fact that they had had free and open democratic elections in 2015. And they appeared to be on their way to a successful transition to uh, democratically run uh, government. And, you know, I think a lot has been uh, and I will confess that I I have not been following this probably as closely as I would have otherwise um, until this week because um, you know there's just uh, I think everybody understood that the the sort of the state uh, was kind of fragile there in terms of the the balance between the the remnants of the military leadership still holding a lot of the important levers of power 
uh, and the democratically elected leadership, and in, in particular the uh, um, the NLD and its leader Aung San Suu Kyi, who is sort of the you know not the president, but is essentially the de facto head of the has been the de facto head of Myanmar's civilian government. Um, you know that was there was a lot of uh, moving parts there and a lot of uh, tensions and nuances to how that was being being handled. But but let me. So let me do, let me, there's so many dimensions to this. So let me, um, let me just tee this up for you first, Tim, because I think we're going to run through a number of different scenarios here. But as you said, new day, new administration, new day. I think it's safe to assume that under the old regime, under the Trump administration, there would have been um, some very vigorous, you know, denouncements of this and in all likelihood, a new executive order rolled out within a matter of days to impose, you know, pretty uh, heavy sanctions on the military, the generals, uh, and perhaps other aspects of the Myanmar economy to really try to put the squeeze on them and, and perhaps try to um, try to lead to some change in behavior. That hasn't happened yet, although there are, have been strong signals from uh, President Biden and from others in the administration that obviously sanctions are on the table. Every, I think that's no surprise to anybody. Um, but how that gets how that's being considered, what that will look like, how that may proceed perhaps in concert with something that the UN may do or the EU may do or other partners of the US and Asia may do. That's all being discussed, which is, again, something that wouldn't have been discussed probably two years ago if this has happened, uh, because the US would have probably just plowed forward and, and acted unilaterally. So I guess as an initial, so let's put let's kind of put China aside for a moment because there's a lot of China angles to this that we're going to have to talk about eventually. But just in terms of thinking through what you've heard so far from the administration, and kind of looking at the range of options that they might have in terms of imposing new, fresh new sanctions, going back to something similar to what was you know mothballed when the Burma program went away. What do you what do you sort of see as uh, the spectrum and the how would you handicap? the likelihood of, of what ends up happening here. You know, that was a great summary, Brian, because I think that that basically where we are now is, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure to act and there should be a lot of pressure to act. I mean, it is a bad thing when after a free and fair democratic election, a group says that the election was unfair and actually tries to take power by force and, and you know, Succeeds. As we, as we, and, and right, as we know all too well in the U.S., having dodged that bullet just a few and, weeks ago, and as as what has long been known as as the world's you know leading voice for democracy, the United States has a leadership role to play in trying to stop that. That said, you know you have a situation in which the goal, and I think you've got to start with what's the goal. Well, the goal is to return the democratically elected government to power and to have the military back down. Putting sanctions, so, so so that should inform what you're going to do. And and the thing that could happen most quickly, and what the Trump administration did in connection with the the genocide against the Rohingya that the the Myanmar military was, uh, you know, has been largely blamed for, is they immediately put sanctions on the military leaders who were connected to that genocide. How effective was, was that? I mean, it's not clear to me that the military leaders have a lot of economic connections to the West. And so, you know, whether being on the SDN list was some sort of deterrent to a bunch of generals in Myanmar, 
it, it seems doubtful to me, but it does look strong and you can do it fast very quickly and you can do it unilaterally. It just doesn't have any effect. And here I would say that the effect would be even less because, you know, wh whether or not it is in the general self-interest to perpetuate a genocide, it's certainly in the general self-interest now that they've taken power to keep it. And so, so sanctions are unlikely it's against the generals themselves are unlikely to change that behavior so that's one, option one and i think yeah, it's it's one that's likely to be fast and and easy yeah. but ineffective right one and one sort of point there is that and in the, the generals were that tim is referring to they were they were sanctioned under the global magnitsky sanctions this is back in 2019. um one a couple points that i've seen discussed around this is Exactly your point that, you know, as a practical matter, and we've talked about this in Hong Kong and in China and other places that what is it really, what difference does it really make? Does this really have an impact on their lives? Well, I did see some talk around the time that they were sanctioned originally that, you know, as a sort of a front to their, their honor, their dignity, their sort of perception of themselves as, as, you know, honorable persons who are doing something that they apparently believe in that was a bit of a sting. So symbolically, there might have been some weight there. But I think you're right that if we're talking about just piling on more of the same when, you know, the the supreme, you know, leader of the uh, Myanmar military is already on the SDN list and a number of the senior generals are as well, what difference will that make? And I, I agree, that's something you could, we could see that come out today, right? We're four days right. removed from this, could come out today, but what, what will that really do? So I think the way you framed it in terms of what's the ultimate goal here, that's, I think, the important thing to kind of keep in mind. And, and so, so, and I'm not saying that, that, that they shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that that alone, even though it's, it's easy to do and you can do it quickly, is unlikely to actually make much progress towards the ultimate goal. The next option, you know, and, and, and I do think that there another option there that's not sanctions it, to get to the goal, and I think ought to play a role whether you impose sanctions or not, is diplomacy. I mean, th there is the ability um, to negotiate with the generals to see if there's some way to have them, you know, save face but return power. That's generally not going to be just a U.S. diplomacy effort. It's going to be a it's going to be a much more multilateral. Um, process, but I think that's another thing, factor to keep in mind in connection with the sanctions. But if you decide that sanctions are the way you want to go and that you think that they will have some use, you're probably going to need to ratchet them up. The, the problem there is that Myanmar is kind of a hard country for sanctions to work on all that well, because you know the next ratchet up would be some sort of sectoral sanction program like we have against uh, Venezuela and we have against Russia, where essentially you go after, and, and in some sense we have it against Iran, although the Iranian sanctions are obviously much broader, but you go after certain sectors of the economy. And in some countries like Venezuela, that's easy, right? Because Venezuela is a almost entirely oil-based economy. And so if you want to put pressure on Venezuela, you go after the oil industry. In Myanmar, they, they do have an oil industry, but it's not anywhere near this, the proportionate size of the, the Venezuela oil or the oil industry is to Venezuela. So finding an industry that you would target, you know, perhaps there, there are industries that have been linked to the generals and companies that have been linked to the generals. So maybe you go, go bigger and go after some sectors that have been linked to the generals themselves and to the, to the Myanmar military. And so that starts to ratchet up pressure because if you really start to Put the screws to um, you know some economic interests that are connected to the people who are who are connect who are, who carried out the coup. Um, and by the way, I, I pause here. The U.S. hasn't necessarily called that a coup yet because calling 
this a coup also has um, foreign policy implications in terms of foreign aid. So once the administration labels this to be a coup, we can't provide foreign aid to Myanmar, which will also put some pressure on the generals because we'd have to stop the foreign aid, but we don't give Myanmar much foreign aid. So it's not much pressure either. It, it is, by the way, they have now officially called it a coup. It took a little while, but they, they, they were hinting at it and now they finally got there. So it, right. it took a couple right. days. I, I, the, the article that I saw from, I think yesterday said that yeah. they were thinking about it, but yeah. I guess they 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 came over to the other side this morning. But that has consequences, and so that means that foreign aid is automatically cut off to Myanmar. So that will have some effect. That's ratcheted it up as well. But again, it's not that significant. And the the, the sectoral sanctions are harder because Myanmar doesn't have obvious sectors to sanction, except for maybe the agricultural sector, which is it is prohibited by U.S. law to be sanctioned because of right. the humanitarian implications of it. Yeah. So. Well, one, one thing I was going to add there that you touched on briefly, which is uh, kind of occurred to me was um, I agree with every, I agree with everything you're saying. And I think that, again, under the new the approach of the new administration, I think we are far less likely to see a scorched earth approach to Myanmar, knowing that we are the, the sort of fallout from that. And the the, you know, probably most direct consequence of that is that the average Myanmar, you know, uh, man or woman is going to suffer, you know, considerably as a result of that, if that, if that were the case, um, and, or at least more than the generals would to, to some degree. And, and would that be enough to sort of, you know, it, move the levers to really make any change, uh, query whether that would be the case. You did mention um, the, there are a couple of large conglomerates that are controlled by the military. And so I could see a scenario where perhaps they go on the SDN list uh, to try to squeeze, you know, a big source of uh, economic uh, wealth and resource for the generals uh, and, you know, in the short term, at least. And that might actually create some pain that could be felt as opposed to more something more symbolic. Now, I think, again, looking ahead, not that we're ready to go there yet. Anything that the U.S. is going to do here is also going to potentially push the generals and the country generally closer to China, which is something that the US does not want to do. So it's sort of, it's, it's, it's coming up with a solution that threads that needle that is appropriately tough, but is not so, you know, perhaps draconian that it's going to cause them to flee to China for, uh, you know, for comfort and for protection. And, right. and that's, I think, a very real possibility. Yeah. Right. And that gets you to option three, right? I mean, option one is just target the generals very, you know, precisely. Tar option yeah. two is target sectors or, you know, companies that are affiliated with the generals or sectors of the economy where you can put pressure on the generals. But that's hard to do. It might be doable, but it's hard to do. And that maybe that will, you know, uh, thread the needle so that you you don't push the generals towards China, but you you put enough pressure to, to make them, uh, you know, hand over the control of the country back. Option three is the embargo, right? I mean, you could you could use the Iran model or the Syria model or the North Korea model, um, but but the problem there again, and, and all those countries show that Cuba shows it as well, that embargoes don't work very well at changing the government because essentially you you put huge amount of pressure on the government, um, but but governments just don't generally hand back over control. Um, 
due to sanctions pressure, it causes a loss of face. It also gives them an opportunity because the people start to feel the, 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 the pain of the sanctions to blame the United States or to blame the world community and essentially make it an us against them scenario, which has happened in all the countries that I just mentioned. And so the sanctions, while they've been effective at creating humanitarian crises and, and shutting down economies, they haven't been effective at changing governments. And so you back them into a corner, they're likely to flee to China. That is, they're likely to turn to China and say, can you help? And China seems ready. Well, and the other the other point there too is that embargoes are not going to be terribly effective when they're unilateral, especially when Absolutely. especially when if the U.S. is the country that were to impose such a a restriction or an embargo, our economic ties to Myanmar are minimal in the grand scheme of things, right? It, it so it would have You'd to need be, China. It would have to be right, which is never going to happen. Obviously, that's never going to happen. So even if it were multilateral, even if you had European and, uh, and maybe other even maybe even other Asian nations that were inclined to get on board with something like that, the ties to the economic ties to China are substantial. So th- I think they would have that lifeline regardless. Uh, and yeah, so so I think that a, a full on embargo to me doesn't doesn't make a ton of sense. And then I think that that this also now it does kind of pivot us to sort of the it's 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 more I guess this is kind of option four, which is you know what would if we're thinking more broadly now under the new administration in terms of what just beyond what the U.S. can do unilaterally, and we're now thinking multilaterally which all indications are that that is the thinking in the administration. And, 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 he, and even specifically here in, in Myanmar, that there's, right. a, there's, there's news reports already talking about how the administration is working with at least the, the European Union and potentially the UN, although the UN seems like a non-starter because China has a veto. But right. they're already making efforts to go multilateral on this. Right. And that would be the question is sort of what what could be what could be done there and whether there could be perhaps some combination of sanctions and diplomacy that could be uh, deployed by, you know, perhaps a U.S. led uh, effort to try to, again, restore the democratically elected leaders uh, to power in Myanmar or to perhaps um, hold another election. I mean, the problem is, of course, that there was just an election. <laughs> right. This was, this was, it was just an election a couple of months ago. And this is literally, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a, it's a, it's almost like a bizarre version of what we lived through here in the U S thankfully, this is not what we, where we ended up in the U S but there, there were the military just, they got crushed in the election. They're wildly unpopular among the Myanmar right. people. And then they're like, well, there was massive fraud. And that's the only reason that, well, that- the, the DLP won by such a convinced, the NLP won by such a, NL, I'm sorry, NLD won by such a convincing margin. And therefore, we have to intervene to, you know, save our country from ourselves kind of thing. Well, and this is, you know, and I don't want to be political about this, but this is the danger of screaming election fraud without any evidence from the United States perspective. It makes it a lot harder to go into Myanmar and 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 say, this is, you know, this is just a smokescreen. This is just something that that losers of elections do when they lose as they claim they've been cheated, right. um, which is what the Myanmar military by all accounts is doing. But when when you've got a significant portion of the population in the United States that was doing the same thing, it becomes a lot harder for the United States to say that without them pointing back at us and saying, get your own house in order. Yeah. So and this it is, really does create issues. Yeah. And this is exactly what we've been talking about for the last couple of months, which is the credibility gap that we now have as a 
uh, as a member of the global community, given what has happened in the last several years and, you know, just the, sh you know, shocking level of hypocrisy and, um, you know, sort of duplicity that's been going on, um, you know, with the U.S. at the highest levels of the U.S. government. And now what do we what do we do with that? And, and, and how does that leave? Where does that leave us in terms of our ability to actually lead and intervene and and, you know, have some meaningful influence in situations like this. And I think that remains to be seen. Again, though, back to where we started, of course, it is a new day, it's a new administration. I think there's a, a you know, a feeling that new administration is certainly proceeding as if, uh, you know, they are entitled sort of the benefit of the doubt that sort of traditional historical US values are have kind of been restored in terms of our foreign policy and, and the way that we wanna use and deploy sanctions and diplomacy and things like that. So I think that all of those, that playbook is certainly fully back in in front of uh, the U.S. and is is going to be at our disposal, as opposed to we're just going to use a hammer and we're going to go on our own and we don't really care what anybody else does. So, um, but it is an issue, and I think we are going to get that thrown back in our face for the foreseeable future. That um, you know, y you American hypocrites have no right to be telling us what to do when you can't manage this on your own. So, so why don't we? I was going well, to it just it no, it emboldens efforts like this because right. when when you see the same thing happen in the United States um, to to a democratic democratic election and almost I mean almost succeed I mean what if the Supreme Court had done something different with the lawsuits <laughs> right. that had tried to take it over what if the insurrection had been worse and and killed congressional leaders and actually stopped the electoral college vote I mean those are the reasons that when people were saying this is how tin pot dictators behave it wasn't just rhetoric I mean right. three weeks later tin pot dictators do exactly the same thing. They use right. that playbook, but they just succeed because they right. got the military. I mean, thank God here in the United States, the military did what the military has historically and, and proudly done in the United States, which is stay out of trying to pick the winner in democratic elections. But right. that didn't happen in Myanmar and the, the coup worked. Yeah, and, and so I think that's a good time to pivot to the sort of other big aspect of this, which is China and what this means for US-China because we can't even have a segment. Without we can't China. have. We can't have a. We cannot manage to have. We we tried to. You know, uh, the the news cycle and other world events sort of let us uh, gave us some gifts this week where we didn't have to talk all about China, but we can't stay entirely away from China. So, um, just for background purposes, for anybody who's not again who's not following this or who hasn't sort of been reading up on this over the last few days, one of the sort of I think most interesting wrinkles here is the idea that. You know, if, if you look at this on paper and you say, oh, military coup in Myanmar, a neighboring country to China, where they already have, you know, considerable ties, they must be thrilled in Beijing. <laughs> Not the case necessarily, because uh, in fact, the uh, democratically elected government, I think it, consensus seems to be across the board, was much more kind of China leaning uh, and solicitous of China and their influence and their um, assistance than than the generals, and in fact, that that was one of the reasons that has been one of the reasons cited by policy experts and others that the generals felt the need to to do this in part because they felt like the the sort of pivot to China or the lean in to China by the um, the civilian government was too pronounced and was you know really threatening the independence of Myanmar. So right, the generals so, are a, a Myanmar first movement. Right, right. So uh, make Myanmar great again. So exactly. the um, so we have the odd situation where from the sort of 
just from a pure objective kind of, you know, chessboard management standpoint, the U.S. may actually be better off with the generals there because they are going to be a bit of a bulwark against China in the short term, at least. Whereas, and and you know, conversely, the the, the Chinese leadership is in all likelihood not so happy to see the democratically uh, elected leadership of Myanmar go uh, or be deposed because uh, the the sort of influence that they were exerting in the in the prior you know five plus years may now have just completely evaporated essentially. Now, of course, there's also been news reports that there was a, a visit by a high ranking Chinese official to meet with Myanmar military officials just a few weeks before the coup happened. And there is, you know, conspiracy theories out there about whether they may have been told about it or orchestrated it or encouraged it or whatever. I'm not gonna credit any of that at this point, but um, I think just from, again, from a sheer kind of policy standpoint, that th those are the facts, is that the, the military is probably going to be less China-friendly. And that is a net good for the US in the short term and a net negative for right. China in the short term. Now, what what we make of that and what, what happens there and what how that dictates sort of next moves and the sort of, um, you know, very complicated and nuanced, you know, public communications and diplomatic steps that may be taken and sanctions that may be imposed, that's a that's a hard thing to predict, but I think, but that is very important to kind of keep in the background here. Is that that is not, this is not a very straightforward, you know. Whereas I I will credit the Biden administration when they say that they actually want to uh, restore the U.S.'s leadership role in terms of you know spreading democracy around the world, upholding democratic values, ensuring free and fair elections, etc. So that would make this a no-brainer that they should be adamantly opposed to this. Uh, in all respects, but I think the again the reality is the China dimension makes this a little more complicated, and likely um, you know is is leading to some at least some healthy debates sort of within the White House, the State Department, the National Security Council, et cetera, about what's really the best course here. Right. I mean, and and I I, I suspect the best course is going to be some combination of sanctions and dis diplomacy exercised in a multilateral way, if that's possible, because. Um, it, it, as you pointed out, Brian, I mean, we just don't have enough connections to Myanmar to make a, 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 some sort of unilateral sanctions pro program very effective, especially uh, if it's a small unilateral sanctions program. I mean, targeting the generals and cutting them off from the U.S. financial system when you know many of them have already been cut off from the U.S. financial system isn't likely to do much. But on the other hand, this is not this issue i think is is too complicated for sanctions and it does involve surrendering of power which which sanctions are really poor at at getting governments to do historically i mean we'll talk throughout this show and really throughout the the podcast generally about us sanctions programs whose goal was to overthrow a government and they've all failed i mean none of them have worked and usually you know sometimes they can work in conjunction with you know, restoring democratic elections, but but the ability and and you know, arguably they worked in Myanmar the last time around, or at least played some role in restoring in in, in taking the country to democratic elections. But but standing alone, they don't work. They at least historically haven't worked, and they certainly don't work fast. So. Right. They take decades, not yeah. not months, not months. Um. So let's let's end on one last kind of interesting little footnote point, which is which is trade related, which is the fact that uh, it was just reported that the, again, the de facto head of the civilian government, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was arrested and deposed uh, 
yeah, I, I, I believe it's a little unclear of her whereabouts at the moment. The reporting is sort of conflicting on this, but it was reported that she has now been charged with uh, in importing illegally importing 10 walkie talkies, which can carry with it a three year prison term. Uh, and, and I don't say this lightly. Uh, because this is the kind of thing that, quite frankly, we're seeing right now in Russia with uh, with Alexei Navalny and, you know, sort of the, well, the the sort of, no pun intended, trumped up charges on, you know, by political, to target right. political lock enemies. Up, lock her up, right? right. I mean, exactly. that's exactly. that's what they and, did, right? They, they and locked her up of, on a walkie-talkie charge. And that's mm-hmm. what this and that's what this seems to be. But, I, I guess um, they couldn't find her using a personal email server in order to lock her up. Yeah, so I, I don't pretend to be. Uh, I don't. I don't think there are any details out there about these walkie-talkies. I don't know what kind of technology they have. I don't know where they came from. Hopefully, they're not U.S. origin. Uh, but uh, in any event, it's just sort of an interesting little footnote. And I think we're going to see more. We're going to see more things like that. I think that also just does, that does also underscore. And I know that to again to not making we're not making light of this. This is obviously a, a you know a desperately serious situation. Um, but, uh, you know, for all the, for all the companies and persons who decided to kind of get back into Myanmar in a big way in the last five plus years, there is a lot, there is, I know there's a lot of scrambling and, and headache most likely on the horizon in terms of what, what will continue to be able to be done versus, uh, you know, are they going to have to potentially pick up stakes again and, and, and abandon the country or, or what, what do they need to do to, to deal with this? And so that's, that is a very real just from a kind of sanctions compliance, uh, you know, issue that we know is literally kind of spinning up right now for a number of big companies. Uh, and so uh, that is, again, not something that we're making light of. That is a very serious problem. And and so I think we're obviously too, too soon to know, again, what this is all going to look like, what the parameters are going to be of any new restrictions. But uh, obviously, l- looking down the road, I think we're going to hear more about that. And we're going to start understanding and hearing more about what those kind of real world implications are certainly for for companies that do business in in Myanmar. Yeah, and for those companies, I mean I, I and and it is a very serious issue. I mean, we've 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 analogized to the US in a little way because the the parallels are just too close to ignore, but but on a on a compliance level, I think what companies are worried about is if the sanctions go big, how soon will they come and will there be a wind down period? And I think that the the bigger they go, the slower they'll be and the, the, the longer a wind down period there likely will be because at least historically, the U.S. is not going to um, impose sanctions on a country that has all sorts of economic um, fallout for non-MMR companies without at least allowing, you know, some some orderly wind down and, and allowing the US companies to to protect their economic interests to the extent they can. Especially because this wasn't exactly foreseeable in any real way. I exactly. Think. Uh, you know, even though people may have sniffed that there was trouble potentially on the horizon or that there could have been trouble at any point in the last five years, you know, I don't I don't know that anybody went to went to sleep on Friday night or Saturday night and expected that this is what they would wake up to see you know, on Monday. So, so I agree with that. I think that there would, there in all likelihood, we would see something with a long lead time to for sort of wind down, but you know, in any event, we'll, we'll stop there for today. Uh, We could do probably another half an hour on Myanmar, but uh, we're going to come back to this clearly because this is a big one. Uh, Again, one of the first real tests of the Biden administration in terms of foreign policy and some of the reporting suggested that they 
there were certain members of the team that were displeased that this had just sort of fallen on their heads or in their laps kind of unexpectedly when they have so many other things to deal with domestically right. and, and otherwise. But, you know, that's, uh, that's life and that's life in the right. NFL, as they say, uh, you know, when you're in the big time, this is what you have to deal with. So, <laughs> so with that, let's pivot to, let's pivot to another uh, sort of, uh, sanctions, favorite sanctions topic of ours, and, and perhaps some early insights into, into the new approach that we might see from the Biden administration. Let's go down to Venezuela. I'll kick well, it over to him. A lot of similarities um, in some sense, because you, you do have in Venezuela, it's been going on a little longer, and it wasn't necessarily a coup in, in, in some sense, because it, it, at least at one point, it appears that Maduro probably was democratically elected in, in Venezuela, although not recently by all reports. But but the U.S. has a sanctions policy in Venezuela. It is has a very aggressive sanctions policy in Venezuela. Um, and, and at least in the Trump administration, the goal was to remove Maduro and his regime from power. That was the, the stated goal of the U.S. maximum pressure sanctions policy. And the way that they did it um, was to target the Venezuelan government, target uh, PDVSA, the, the national oil company, which is, you know, by far the biggest natural resource in Venezuela and by far the biggest part of the Venezuelan economy. Um, very few exceptions and even some secondary sanctions, although that was a questionable point. I mean, OFAC, I've heard OFAC say at conferences that this, the sanctions against Venezuela were not secondary, but they have imposed multiple uh, SDN designations against companies and individuals who have participated in the Venezuelan oil industry without any U.S. nexus. And so in that sense, um, and, and in the material support sense, there was some secondary aspect to those sanctions. Though again, how much was unclear, but it was a big effort to remove the Maduro government without any real success to show for it, except for the fact that the Venezuelan economy has been destroyed. So you have gasoline shortages in a country that has the largest oil reserves in the world. I mean, terrible gasoline shortages, food shortages. You have some of the oil fields that are burning, um, or at least were burning. I mean, it's been a real disaster for Venezuela, but it hasn't really um, moved the needle very much at all with respect to whether Maduro stays in power. The Biden administration has now come in with what they say is a new goal, and the new goal does not mean removing Maduro for power. It's just to create free and fair elections. And so the goal is essentially the same as the goal in Myanmar now. I mean, it's, it, it, the Myanmar goal, I guess, is to remove to remove the military leaders, but it is to they they don't have any pretense to being democratically elected. And when they ran in the last election, they didn't do well. So so I I think that in Venezuela, the 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 focus is in the Biden administration is likely to shift from from removing Maduro to reinstating the democratic process and punishing Maduro's enemies to reinstating the democratic process. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, it does mean that the US has some, some leeway to start easing back some sanctions in exchange for some movement towards the democratic process. And it does mean that they haven't boxed themselves into a corner by forcing, by having the stated goal of forcing Maduro out, meaning that Maduro and his regime would be unable to participate in discussions about a free and fair 
election process and likely the approach would have been that they couldn't run in it possibly in the biden um in in the biden approach you could see some role for maduro like he could potentially run in a in an election as long as there were protections to make it free and fair that approach seems to have some more likely uh, likelihood of success. I think that that the stick would be the sanctions stay on unless you come to the unless everyone comes to the table for elections. The carrot would be if we start moving towards the elections, we start seeing things like um, lifting the sanctions on PDVSA or at least creating general licenses that allow a lot more dealings with PDVSA. Um, and I've seen that reported already that that is one approach that the Biden administration is considering. I, I think that that combined with um, sending signals to the, to the world community that there will not be secondary sanctions for real not just saying it, but that that basically this is a, you know, limiting the sanctions to a U.S. nexus um, would be another way to ensure that uh, some economic development goes on in Venezuela. Because the, the real problem here is that the sanctions have been so broad and they've been so broad against so many industries and they have gone against transactions even without a U.S. nexus that despite the fact that the Trump administration and, and OFAC would send signals from time to time on paper that the, the sanctions didn't affect humanitarian transactions like food and, and, and in some sense, like, like gasoline imports into the country. As a practical matter, these sanctions were so broad and, in, and, and, and it went against so many in, individuals and industries that they just have shut down all um, foreign, foreign uh, trade with Venezuela and the rest of the world, including humanitarian trade. And you've got to have some way of getting humanitarian trade back on, on track. And that would be, I think, lifting the sanctions and sending signals that, that certain types of activities, apart from just saying humanitarian transactions, are not going to be sanctioned and, and are going to be permissible. And so you, you kind of, the carrot and the stick can get you to the end of the, to, to the, end of the line. When, you, when your approach is the government has to change for anything to be lifted, you, don't, you, you lose the carrot. And I think that to me, that is, that is what's, what, where, where the new approach to Venezuela has slightly more chance of success. I mean, it's still gonna be very hard to move Maduro to democratic elections if he thinks that democratic elections means Maduro goes, but it may not be as hard to move Maduro to democratic elections if he thinks they're going to be elections in which he has a chance. And it certainly um, will help you if you have the sort of carrot that if you start making progress on that road, that the that the economy could come back and the Venezuelan people will be helped. I mean, I, I hope so. Yeah, I think this is, I don't, I don't have too much more to add to that. I think we're coming, as Tim said and summarized, I think we're coming out of a, you know, a maximum pressure era with respect to Venezuela that was, you know, honestly, other than Iran, like Venezuela might have taken it on the chin from the Trump administration about as hard as anybody uh, over the last several years. And, you know, what is there to show for it? I don't, you know, I, I think, you know, the consensus seems to be not that much at this point, other than a ravaged Venezuelan economy and Maduro still clinging to power, even if, even if we, even if the United States and other governments are recognizing Guaido as the, as the elected, you know, leader of Venezuela, you know, that's, there was an election just a few months ago that was seen as a sham where they were, they boy, Guaido and his party boycotted largely. And, and so now there's, you know, it's been 
a few years since there's been any kind of a you know real election that could be pointed to as as something that would be legitimate and and again as tim said i think although in the in the sort of trump era talking points you know free and fair democratic elections was kind of uh, you know on the action plan eventually it was clear that they were trying to squeeze maduro and his cronies uh sort of in the first instance and and quite frankly they're all under the most of them are well, most of them have been designated. A lot of them are under indictment with the big massive criminal case um, that was brought by DOJ uh, last year. And, you know, I think there was a hope that maybe they'd be able to get their hands on one or more of these folks and extradite them to the U.S. or, or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, that being said, they're, they're still kind of, you know, moving along. Pedavesa is obviously still operating. I looked and still doing pretty well. I mean, even even under sanctions. I mean, there's, you know, I saw some report on output and revenues from January and, you know, China, Russia, Iran, there's, you know, Cuba, there's other countries in Latin America, clearly that are still invested in doing business in Venezuela and aren't going to turn away. I mean, just because the U.S. has turned away doesn't mean that, uh, I think to Tim's point, and this is sort of what we got back to with Myanmar. Now, obviously, U.S. Venezuela, historically, a very significant sort of economic relationship and ties, but obviously that's eroded significantly over the last, you know, two decades. And, um, and now to Tim's point, you know, I don't, I think the, this is exactly what we were talking about and what we were expecting when we, we said the new administration is, is likely to take a more nuanced approach on some of these things. This idea of maximum pressure everywhere to what end I think is, is gonna, is gonna go away, at least in the short term, like, because, because now that's not to say the first sort of public statements that were made about Venezuela and Maduro were Maduro's a dictator. We're not negotiating with Maduro. Like, so don't get this sort of twisted that the U S is going soft on Venezuela necessarily. But I think to Tim's point, if we want to actually change some behavior and maybe get to a place where there could be free and fair democratic elections, the idea of maximum pressure at least at this point, unless we're going to be fully committed to that for another four years, eight years, 10 years, whatever the case may be. I mean, it is, that is a long road. Um, you know, I think there's a signals that a new approach is, is, is coming. And so I think, and to Tim's point, the, the idea that maybe Pedavesa or other aspects of the Venezuelan economy that have been subject to sanctions, that could be held out as a carrot if there would be some some kind of movement. I think, I think the, the good news, I guess the good news is so much has happened and so much has been put in place that there are a lot of leverage points potentially for the U.S. If they want to, if there's, if there can be any movement, there's a lot of things to kind of negotiate into sort of horse trade in terms of, well, if you're willing to do this, then we can, you know, we can give you some relief here. And so that is, I think, one upside of, of sort of where things evolved over the last several years is there is a lot to, to play with now. And, you know, we'll just have to see over the course of the next you know, six to 12 months, kind of how, how things start to play out. Yeah. Yeah. Two quick, two quick points. I mean, I, I agree with all that. And I, I do want to emphasize in this discussion and in all our discussions, it shouldn't be taken when we're talking about, you know, whether you involve the Maduro regime or whether you involve the generals in negotiations and diplomacy, that we think that, that, that Maduro or the generals in Myanmar or what China is doing to the Uyghurs, that there's, that there's anything good about that. I mean, all of the, you know, Maduro by all accounts has done some really quite bad things. The Myanmar generals by all accounts, at least some of them uh, have done some, some pretty bad things. What's happening to the Uyghurs in, in China is, is by all accounts appears to be an outrage. 
stage. So, so like, there's no dispute that all of these are problems. But the 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 real question that I think sanctions focuses on is, can sanctions play a role in changing the behavior so that you can end those problems? And and I think the answer there is that, um, you know, you do have to you do have to try and make sure that that you don't you don't um, you don't bite off too much. Now, to your other point, Brian, and I think it's a, a very, very good one, is that the benefit of the maximum pressure strategy is that it creates all sort of issues that can be negotiated away. Now, you have to want to negotiate them away, and 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 the 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 real conundrum and the reason that I think you know, or at least one reason that sanctions don't work in regime change is that no regime is going to negotiate itself away. It might negotiate for elections if it thinks that it has a chance of winning elections, but it's not going to enter into a deal where essentially it loses power and its opponents gain power as part of the deal. And so so creating a bunch of negotiating leverage is only good if there's something to negotiate. And so you might be able to negotiate free and fair elections, although that's always a hard lift. In Iran, you could negotiate a nuclear deal because changing the behavior with respect to a nuclear program was achievable because it didn't mean that the, your negotiating partner had to agree that they were illegitimate and, and out of power as the end product of the negotiation. So, so you know, kudos to the Trump administration for creating lots of carrots, but um, you still have to have to have some negotiation in which is which you could potentially use those carrots. Yeah. Agree. And that remains to be seen how that'll play out. I think one final point that I'll make before we um, move on is Tim made the point about kind of secondary sanctions or the the reach beyond sort of just your US, uh, you know, uh, connected conduct here. And, and I think that and this is an issue that we've seen a bunch with with vessels, with others in the petroleum industry where there have been designations. Some have been quick and then removed when there have been promises made to essentially abide by sanctions, which is something we don't usually see is sort of a quick, okay, I, I you know, cross my heart and, you know, swear to whomever that uh, I'm going to now abide by U.S. sanctions. But um, the, uh, you know, I think that aspect of it too is one where if the U.S., wants to signal that they're maybe going to be a little more, uh, take a different approach here, that idea that they're going to be looking for any any and all persons who are potentially providing material assistance uh, is is one where, you know, there is always a lot of weird, because there's so much discretion there. It is, and it is, I think, as a practical matter for, as we know from talking to our clients about this, and as as anybody who has any interface or any interaction at all with Venezuela is worried about, well, if, if I do anything that touches upon the government, then I'm potentially in the crosshairs here. And so, and I think certainly under the Trump administration, that was true, depending on what exactly type of conduct or transaction we're talking about. But, um, you know, going forward, that'll be another thing to look at is sort of, you know, keep an eye on, do we see more uh, designations for, you know, material assistance uh, of designated parties or the government or, uh, you know, folks in the in the targeted sectors in Venezuela, because I think that'll that might be a little bit of a signal in terms of how how the enforcement and and again sort of what the ultimate end game is here uh, for the for the Biden administration. So, with that, let's pivot back to uh, what else? China, and uh, this is our final topic uh, of the of the day, our final main topic. But this is a, it's kind of an interesting one, uh, and not one that we've talked about before. I think if um, if you recall, and this was just, um, so this is a lawsuit that was filed by Xiaomi, the Chinese electronics company uh, in uh, district court in DC uh, just about a week ago. 
uh, and it's for declaratory and injunctive relief, basically challenging the basis for its inclusion on the DOD Chinese uh, Communist Chinese military company list, which happened less than a week. They were in there. They were part of tranche five. So they were in the last group that was added by DOD just before uh, inauguration day in on January 14th. Um, recall that the first set of companies came onto the list over uh, last summer. Uh, and as a result, they are um, basically challenging inclusion on that list. And then uh, they're sort of highlighting the implications of that inclusion uh, with respect to the executive order 13959 that we've talked about a lot, which is the restrictions on US person trading in publicly, uh, transacting in publicly traded securities of communist Chinese military companies. And so the lawsuit is, um, so one thing I wanna highlight here quickly, and, and the basis of the lawsuit is, first of all, is the, I noted it is the same team that successfully challenged um, the, uh, and now I'm forgetting, were they, was this the team that challenged the TikTok side or the WeChat side? I, I thought it was TikTok, it was TikTok the, it was, but I noted it, that it was the same group as the well same, from, from over at Covington. It's the same team from Covington that, that challenged, successfully challenged um, the uh, executive order that we talked about a lot last year from August, uh, restricting TikTok users and WeChat users or the two co accompanying orders. Um, and so this is sort of similar-ish, um, although uh, it's it's a pure action under the APA for arbitrary and capricious uh, agency action. And, and also the other ground is a Fifth Amendment violation. So there's no kind of IEPA-based challenge to this at the moment. It's just pure APA and, and constitutional Fifth Amendment challenge. Um, the interesting thing, though, is I, th I think when we first saw this come up, when we first saw um, the DOD listings come up, and we, we noted, well, this doesn't really mean anything. It's just this is long overdue. 20 years ago, this was supposed to happen, and now it's finally happening in summer of 2020. Um, but then, of course, with the new executive order coming out and the fact that this list has, the DOD list has kind of pivoted and now has actual significance and tangible effect under EO13959, it's the sort of the stakes have been raised and the, and the game has been changed. One thing that we pondered was, well, what does a company do if they get on the DOD list and they want to try to get off? There is no process. We weren't aware of any process that there is within DOD, like a delisting process at OFAC or Try, you know, the process that the Commerce Department has to get off the entity list. So what kind of process is there? And I think this is kind of highlighting that issue and that tension, which is the fact that there is no process. There was no reason given. It's just sort of stated that this, the DOD has decided under section 1237 of the fiscal year 2019 or 1999 NDAA that this is a communist Chinese military company. And not surprisingly, the definition that they um, that applies there is that it's owned, controlled, uh, or affiliated with the PLA, um, People's Liberation Army, or a ministry of the of the Chinese government. It's a it's very broad, and so a lot of the complaint sort of tries to rebut that in some ways. It just says, no, this is here's our ownership structure, here's our shareholding structure. Um, we are not, in fact, we do not meet the the company does not meet the definition of a communist Chinese military company, and Beyond that, the decision to, uh, you know, decide that that they did meet it was arbitrary and capricious because there was no process, no basis, no reasons given, and that's that's sort of the fundamental base of attack here. Um, and so, my question for you, Mr. O'Toole, is, um, I think this is 
probably about what this is probably sort of what we would have expected, I guess, is that it would have to be litigation like this to challenge something like this. Now, on the OFAC side, obviously, now I, I checked this morning and they're not Xiaomi because it's so new. They're, they haven't even been added to the to the OFAC list of CCMCs. They're they're you know, they're being the suit is being brought by the fact that this is the DOD. They were put to, on the DOD list, which is you know covered by the EO. Therefore, they were subject to the executive order relating to publicly traded securities. And they're now on the clock. And within 60 days, there's that's when the first element of the ban goes in. And then a yep. year from now is the is the divestment um, ban that goes in for U.S. persons. And so based on their shareholding structure, you know, that's a that's a problem for them. And so, um, you know, I guess. In terms of a mechanism to challenge something like this, I guess what are your what are your initial thoughts, having looked at the complaint and and as this is being the avenue to do this, just sort of initial reactions, and then um, you know how do we, I guess how do we how do we handicap at this early stage any kind of likelihood of success here, perhaps, and and whether this is now this could be a roadmap to, you know, if this is successful, just like with the WeChat and TikTok uh, challenges, then then maybe this blows the whole thing up. Maybe this, um, you know, significantly kind of undercuts what, what's in place right now. What, do you, what are your thoughts on all that? So I, I, I thought the lawsuit is a very good one, um, having read through the complaint in some detail. Um, I, I do think that they they picked a company that appears to be able to, to make Rule 11 worthy allegations about not being affiliated with the Chinese military. And there seemed to be some, some detail for that. And so yeah. among the companies that are on the CCMC list- Not all it, of them are gonna be able to make those kind of- It might be harder for yeah. some of the other companies to make yep. that allegation. And so they, they didn't treat the order as illegitimate as the TikTok and WeChat uh, lawsuits did to some extent. They, they treated the order as legitimate, but the, the, the factual determinations as illegitimate. And I, I think that that is, a, that is a harder road to hoe in an APA context, but I suspect, especially given the last minute nature of some of these designations, that the factual basis may not sur- survive an arbitrary and capricious review with respect to, to Xiaomi or Jimmy um, in, in a way that it might survive with some of the others. The thing that I think is going to be most interesting about this lawsuit, and and I think for it, it, for to to get to the point that you made, one thing that is not in the lawsuit, at least not that I saw, and I was reading it looking for it, is any allegation about whether there was an an available administrative process to exhaust. They don't allege that there's not one, right. but they don't allege they don't mention that they don't mention any sort of process. I think that that um, it's likely that if the Biden administration chooses to d- defend this lawsuit, and I think they probably will, because again, I don't think, if from what I've seen so far, I don't think the Biden administration is walking away from Executive Order One Three Nine Five Nine. I I think it it will, it will try to um, tinker at the the margins with it and try and make it more precise. But I don't think it's walking away, and so it may it may not decide to defend this lawsuit on the facts, but it certainly is not going to walk away from this lawsuit on the grounds that it doesn't mind challenges to one three five nine or one three nine five nine designations 
CCMC designations. It's not, I don't think it's going to do that. But what, what I think it will also do is, is likely point to the OFAC delisting process as, the, as an available administrative remedy that uh, Xiaomi didn't pursue. And so I think that one of the big defenses here from, from um, the, the US government side is going to be exhaustion. But to make that defense, they're going to have to tell us what process is available because right. this, they haven't this, done it yet. This will do, do a lot of favors for people like us who have these discussions with clients and try to figure out, well, if we want to try to attack the DOD action, then here are some things we could do, but right. it is not entirely clear what, what pathway you would take. And I think the complicating factor, I agree with that. I think the complicating factor here, though, is this was a DOD listing in the first instance, right? So right. you're right that maybe they could sort of latch on to the OFAC delisting process, which I think is something that we sort of expected would be perhaps the avenue that most companies who would want to challenge this on, an, on the administrative side would probably have to pursue. But given that this was in the first instance, a DOD action to add them, it's not clear to me that going through the OFAC process would even remedy the underlying issue well, because DOD could keep them on indefinitely, even if you were successful on the, on the OFAC side. Now, and again, I, and we have heard anecdotally that there has, and, and this is something that not surprisingly is coming through in a variety of different agencies, but we have heard that the, the process, even to those in the government, perhaps at treasury and in other parts of the government, whatever DOD has been doing to come up with these, these names, is not entirely clear to others. Well, and, I mean, and, the, and, and the lawsuit so, does a great job at, at showing kind of what a joke this Pentagon list is, and I right. and I don't mean that in the sense that maybe that 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 ultimately it may be that there's some merit to these determinations, but Congress ordered the Pentagon to do this list within like what ninety was, days or six months. It was, in, it was supposed to be issued. I believe they say in the lawsuit, and I believe this it's is twenty right, years but, late. It's 20 years later. It was supposed to be 2001 that the initial company list was supposed to be published, and, and it came out in 2020. Right. So. They, they, I thought the lawsuit did a great job of yeah. describing not only the executive orders, but also the history of the Pentagon list. And 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 so the DOD process, I mean, I, there's really not much dispute to that. It's no process at all. They, right. they just didn't do anything for 20 years. And then I don't think I, I can't remember if they mentioned in the lawsuit, but but at least my understanding is that the final that the listings themselves were made in response to a request from from Senator Cotton, who said, "Where's the list?" Back last summer, and so they they sent him a list, and they didn't really promulgate a list. They just sent a list to to to, to Tom Cotton, and and he publicized the list in response to his letter. And so so this doesn't seem like the sort of orderly government listing process that OFAC is used to, which is was part of the problem in terms of one three nine five nine is that even the list that the Pentagon put out twenty years late was not one that you could really rely on for much because it was not precise enough with respect to who was being designated and that's, who wasn't. That's why we have close matches. And that's why, right. we have the that's why we have the close match nightmare to deal with. No, I agree with that. And then I think also, um, you know, the fact that, and they make, they do a nice job, I think, of alluding to this in the complaint, which is the idea that unfortunately for Xiaomi and these other, I think, seven or eight companies that were designated or added to the list on January 14th. I mean, this is literally the 11th hour this is the fifth tranche of companies. They were not in, there were four prior tranches before this that were added to the DOD list. This is tranche five. It came six days before inauguration. Um, as with all other things that happened in the last week or two of the Trump administration, I think there is going to be natural skepticism among the, even among the new, uh, the new administration as to what the motivations were, whether there was, you know, real legitimate basis for this, 
again, process, what process of any was, was sort of uh, utilized to arrive at these decisions. And just from a, just from an objective standpoint, do we, uh, you know, from a, do we agree as a policy matter that these are the companies that we would want to include here or that would fit the definition or that we would want to be to make subject to 13959 so i think all of those things so as we as we said as we have said in prior context with other lawsuits that we've discussed over the last 6 plus months i think at a minimum this will result in some illumination of whatever process there there should be or must be or could be with relation to putting uh, companies on the list. And that is going to be a very valuable thing, certainly for people like us and many companies out there to know in more detail. Um, and, and I think there's also a possibility, as you said, that the Biden administration and the, and the, and the Biden Justice Department are going to have to take a hard look at well, what aspects would we really want to defend on here? And right. how, what, do we, what do we kind of leave alone? Uh, and you know, we, we agree is kind of from a policy standpoint is good and we want to keep, and then what do we maybe want to take the opportunity to just kind of lop off and, and, you know, through the defense of this lawsuit, perhaps, um, those are all things that are certainly in play. Uh, and so we're going to see movement and action on this in the next, you know, it's a 60 day clock that they're on for this initial, um, ban to go into effect. So we're talking mid-March. And I, so I would fully expect that we're gonna we're gonna be back on this one in the next you know couple episodes to to revisit this. I'm sure once we see how the government responds to this. Well, it's gonna be fascinating because the government, you know, as you pointed out, they're gonna ha- if they're gonna raise exhaustion, which I can't believe they're not going to raise. They're gonna have to yeah. articulate an available Agreed. administrative process. And you, you know the 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 hook is, OFAC has a delisting process, so they could cite that. But but here. The, the, the way you got on the list didn't involve OFAC, or at That's least square, it didn't feel, necessarily involve OFAC. That, so that what do you do about like, the DOD list? Right, that feels like square peg round hole to some degree, right? right. And, and and it may be it may be that that's what they do because they don't have anything else, and that there right. is no there is no DOD process as we sort of as that's, that's on kind either of our, end, right? There's no listing process and there's no delisting process. Right. I think that's I think that's right. So. So anyway, it's going to be fascinating. This is going to be a fascinating one to watch play out. And again, and and uh, Tim was correct. It is the team at Covington and Burling that was behind the TikTok lawsuit. So hats off to them, who've already got one W on the board, and and I think they have you know some some really interesting and intriguing arguments that they've, that they've put that they put forward here. So we're going to be watching this closely. I'm sure many others are as well, and we'll, we'll certainly come back to that. So so with that, I think we'll wrap up the main portion of the program, and we will pause for our favorite sound effect, and we're now in the lightning round. So let me kick it to Tim. We're going to pick up on one. We're going to do two topics very quickly, one that we covered the last time relating to Yemen. Great. And and this will be lightning because we are, we are ways into the podcast at this point. So let's get to these two topics. So in Yemen, we talked, uh, I think it was on the last episode, it might have been a couple episodes ago, about the fact that as the Trump administration wound down, it tried to lock in uh, U.S. policy with respect to um, to Yemen. And one of the things that it did was it it uh, designated the Houthis, which is one side of the, the Yemen, Yemen civil war, which has been going on for many years. I mean, it, it's been going on for about five years as a, as a full-fledged civil war, but the Houthi party dates back to the 90s. I mean, it's it's called the Houthi party because the leaders were, were named Houthi. It actually has a m- more formal name, which is Ansar Allah. Um, and that was who the, the 
Trump administration not only uh, designated but but also said was uh, was sponsoring terrorism and and so they essentially picked a side in the the Yemen civil war. As I understand it, there really is a, a, a it is an an indigenous civil war to Yemen in which foreign governments have now taken up sides as proxies. But the dispute was one that originated because of a real dispute in Yemen over the proper government and and who should be in it. And so what the Trump administration did on the way out was kind of put the U.S. on the side of the the formal government in Yemen, although the Houthis and Sarallah controlled the north part of the country. Um, they, They designated uh, Ansarallah as an SDN. They did a general license that allowed humanitarian transactions with Ansarallah, but, but that was you know, pretty limited. And as we've seen in some of the other programs, a GL for humanitarian uh, purposes is often ineffective if, if every other contact with the same entity is, is uh, cut off. The Biden administration, a few weeks later, takes power. Um, President Biden had run on the idea that we were not going to continue to take sides in the Yemen civil war, and so um, announced the end of U.S. support for Saudi military action. The Saudis are, are, are by all accounts, um, and by their own admission, the supporters of the, 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 the Yemen government side in that civil war. Um, so the U.S. stopped support for the, the Saudi military action, but it also uh, adopted a general license that essentially repealed the designation of Ansarallah, at least for a few weeks. So um, general license 13 allows all dealings with Ansarallah um, that would otherwise be prohibited by the designation, but it it is a, it is a short general license um, that, that expires February 26th. And so the only real question here is, Will it be extended? Why is it so short? What is the U.S. going to do in the long run with respect to the designation of the entire one side in a civil war? Yeah, I would expect that there's going to be more decisive action that's probably expected to be taken before this expires in late February. Uh, and, and that this is just a placeholder to sort of return things to the status quo prior to the designations, essentially for the short term. There could be an extension, certainly, but I think this is just a good example as we kind of uh, you know, discussed last time on the last episode of a just a total about face by the by the current administration uh, with respect to again, as Tim said, the the Saudi involvement in the in the conflict, and then in terms of the way that we're we're going to be treating uh, Ansarallah from a sanctions standpoint. And so I, I think we're going to see a quick reversal on this. That's more uh, that's that's more uh, sort of long. Uh, long-lasting, and the GL is going to be sort of the placeholder for that until that's able to be done. Well, and it does support what the Biden administration says that its policy is, is that it wants a negotiated end to the Yemen civil war. And to have a negotiated resolution, you can't pick one side because there's no way that the other side is going to negotiate itself away. So essentially, it gets the U.S. out of Yemen in terms of picking a side, but keeps it in Yemen in terms of trying to you know, force both parties to the table so that they can negotiate. Yeah, not to mention the fact that if one side is sanctioned under the global terrorism program and the foreign terrorist organization sanctions regulations, then you're going to have a hard time sort of logistically kind of dealing dealing with negotiations. And that, that I exactly. think, is a, as a practical matter, is, exactly. is part of what we're, they're trying to avoid here. So so anyway, that's, that's really all we wanted to say about that. And then um, let's pivot quickly in a lightning fashion to topic number two, which I'm actually going to I'm going to throw you kind of a hypothetical on this one, Tim. So we're going to talk here about CFIUS, which we we do talk about sort of off off mic a lot uh, with ourselves and our clients. But um, 
as as many of you know, there was a, so there's an article, interesting article in the Wall Street Journal a few days ago that talked about what was termed by a CFIUS practitioner who was quoted in the article as the new kind of enforcement um, you know resources that CFIUS has. They they act kind of like a SWAT team, uh, sort of descending upon great un, unwitting unwitting U.S. tech companies and their Chinese investors to uh, investigate. Uh, you know, foreign investment that was not previously notified to the committee. So just quick 30 seconds of background. Uh, we did talk about when the, the new, when FIRMA and the implementing regulations were um, enacted with respect to uh, CFIUS uh, about a year ago. And the expansion of the jurisdiction of CFIUS to look at transactions that are in review and investigate transactions that are not um, traditional M&A. So there's a lot of non-controlling transactions that are now under CFIUS's jurisdiction in their purview. There's a class of those that are have now mandatory notification requirements, depending on the technology involved. There's a there's still a largely, though, a class that is voluntary. It is voluntary whether or not you go to CFIUS and try to get um, their blessing for the foreign investment that you're taking on. Essentially, what the SWAT team is designed to do, or what the the, in, the renewed enforcement efforts are designed to do, is to is to identify investment by in particular china but other other sort of foreign adversaries russia and other countries targeted at uh at a smaller scale at sort of critical us technology uh companies and, se and sectors and the reporting here is that they're looking at even very small scale seed level funding you know in the manner of just a few hundred thousand dollars or a few million dollars which are traditionally not the type of investments that CFIUS really concerns itself with but as a strategic matter there has been a decision made under the new broadened tools of CFIUS that this is a fruitful area for uh, the US government to try to police and explore. And everybody should be on notice, certainly in the tech sector, we've talked about this a lot. Um, and certainly if there's any kind of Chinese uh, angle to the funding that you're taking on as a, even as a very early stage tech company, uh, that your that investment may very well fall under uh, the jurisdiction of CFIUS and would, uh, potentially be very uh, of great interest to them, depending on, again, the nature of the, the sort of field that you're in uh, and the technology that you're in the process of developing. So my question to you, Tim, and this is some variation of a question that we get uh, not infrequently, is if you are a company, let's say you're in Silicon Valley, you're in Austin, Texas, you're in Boston, you're in the DC area, you're wherever around the US, and you've taken on some Chinese funding, in the past you know, year, uh, even at a relatively low level. And perhaps you thought about the CFIUS ramifications and risks of that, perhaps you did not. Um, you know, Maybe though you find yourself reading this Wall Street Journal article and thinking, oh my gosh, what, is this gonna be us? Are they coming for us? Am I gonna get a letter or is there gonna be an investigation? Am I gonna have to unwind uh, the, you know, the transaction that we just completed six months ago or a year ago? What do you do? Do you do you sort of duck and cover, and sort of just you know lay in wait and say, well, we're gonna we're gonna proceed as if everything is fine and we're not gonna stick our necks out, or um, especially if your long-term plans involve maybe more funding from those same sources uh, or similar sources that are gonna raise these same issues, do you perhaps think about reaching out now and 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 taking your medicine perhaps and notifying? Cepheus, what do, what do you do? So duck and cover versus raise your hand. What do you think? 
So the first thing I'd want to do is I'd want to look a little more closely into this issue than the, the journal article when. I mean, it's yeah. a good article, but it's an article. And for so sure. I'd want to know, sure. like, how big are these SWAT teams? What exactly, what exact types of investment are they looking at? You might not be able to find more information because this is not going to be a matter of public record, but the, I'd want to know more. Yeah, the government keeps that pretty close hold, as you can right. imagine. I would, yeah. But, but it, I'd want to look at budgets. Point. I'd want to look at staffing and see if I can figure out, is this just kind of, you know, a really small team that is getting a lot of publicity or is it a, is it, is it like a SWAT team that's going around the country to, you know, a, a large number of startups? How likely is it, is it that they're going to come knocking on the door? If assuming that, that it's, that the, the size and scope of this project is anything like it's depicted in the article, I'm probably, and especially, I mean, your point is a really good one, Brian, especially if you're thinking of going back for more funding, which you probably are to the same investors, I'm probably going to show up and, and try and get this cleared because, because I would much rather be in the posture of knocking on their door so that I get to frame what the investments look like and all the safeguards in place to make sure that um, U.S. you know technology is not going to be stolen by the Chinese, then I would, would then I, then I would you know, I'd be much more comfortable with that posture than having them knock on the door and, and tell me that they're thinking of unwinding the deal when they've already done all of their investigation and, and we're kind of in an adversarial posture where, where it's not a voluntary disclosure, it's essentially a directed disclosure where they've already decided that this is a problem. Um, I'd rather come to them affirmatively and say, hey, you know, we didn't, we didn't show up at the time, but we, on, recons on reflection, here's we want you guys to clear this investment and here's all the safeguards that are in place as to why you shouldn't be worried about it i i, I think i'm probably coming forward unless i can do more investigation and figure out that this program is so small that the chances of getting a knock on the door are close to zero yeah i think your i think your point is well taken that at the end of the day it's a risk benefit that you have to do on a case by case company by company technology by technology basis right so i will say that this type of effort was in its perhaps nascent stages when I was still working with CFIUS, you know, at the at the beginning of the Trump administration, tail end of the Obama administration in the government. And but this desire to do more of this, to do more proactive screening and investigating of these types of transactions is at a is is high within it makes the a lot of sense. And, it makes and there a lot is, of sense. Yeah. And there is now, and there is now, I think legitimately more resources and more bodies behind that effort and more sophisticated um, sort of methods of assessing what might be something that's covered under CFIUS's jurisdiction and and where and you know what types of transactions would be worth pursuing and looking into more. I, I will say that the type of technology that you're developing matters a lot or the type of business you have matters a lot. And that's going to factor in a lot to the risk benefit. If again, if you're a if you're a you know, if you're an app developer and you're going to be catching a lot of US-based data, guess what? That's going to be of interest. If you're going to, if you're producing, you know, if you're in the semiconductor in industry, clearly that's of high interest. If you're in some other cutting edge um, area of technology that's of high strategic value to the US and that would be, um, that it would also therefore be of high strategic value to the Chinese, then that is going to definitely be um, something that's of interest. But I, but I do think, and I would caution anybody out there, I think Tim's right, that I think at the end of the day, this is an interesting sort of thought experiment. And I think the, the journal article sort of you know, prompted 
us to think about that in those terms a little bit. But at the end of the day, if you're sitting out there thinking about this, um, you know, it is very much a let's look in the mirror and let's really evaluate what we're dealing with, what the nature of our businesses, our future plans are, who our investors have been to date, who they may be in the future. All of those things, I think, have to be factored in before you would make any, you would want to make any decisions that would certainly be sort of the council at a high level that we would give to any of our clients on this type of thing. Uh, so, but I do think it, it raises an interesting um, prospect, which is we may see now in the course of the next six, 12 months, 18 months, more of these cases that are kind of bubbling up publicly uh, and hearing about more of them and companies that get hauled in before CFIUS, things getting unwound, penalties getting assessed, if there were mandatory requirement, filing requirements, et cetera. I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're now kind of shifting into that early stage where, where there's going to be more there's going to be more to that, and we're going to see more of that publicly. Yeah, and and, and I, I, for all of those reasons too, I mean, I, I think if you think that there's a decent chance you're going to get caught anyway, you just want to be able to frame all of those issues. You want to frame the, t- the technology and why it's not going to be critical <coughs> enough to be stolen by the Chinese and why uh, the, the data is managed in a way that it won't be stolen. So as opposed to, because if the investors are not controlling the company, there's probably some pretty good arguments as to why just putting in money is not going to get them access to either the tech and or the, and or the, 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 the data. Right. And the regs are obviously written with that in mind. And that's, that's, that is sort of how it's designed is to insulate those when it's, you know, it's purely passive and things like that. But I would say, I agree with Tim that sort of a best, best defense here might be a good offense. If you really do feel like you might be in, uh, you know, caught by uh, the, you know, the new rules and the expanded jurisdiction, really thinking through how you, whether you could, you would want to go in and notify um, and you would want to frame it in the way that's going to be most sort of beneficial. And you would want to think through legitimately and operate, you know, from an operational standpoint, from a physical security, from a, um, you know, electronic security standpoint, what are the things we can do right now to sort of mitigate all these risks and hopefully make the, get the committee comfortable that we, we have everything in place to, uh, to manage that as opposed to have them snatch it away from us or tell us, you know, foist upon us something that we don't want. So so a, a good a good sort of point to end on, and something that's uh, you know we'll we'll be keeping an eye on as as things progress here over the course of the next um, year to year plus. Um, so that's all we have for this episode. We're we are wrapped. Um, I think uh, to tease our next episode, we are getting logistics and schedules worked out. But I believe we are going to have guests on our next episode, and they're likely going to be guests from abroad to give some uh, perspective on on sanctions issues that they are seeing and that how the change in the U.S. landscape is affecting them and their clients. And so um, we're we're getting that set up. But I do think that that's what we're what we're hoping for in our late February episode. Um, and so. Um, yeah, so we're really looking forward to that. And, uh, and with that, I think that's, um, that's all we have for this time. So thanks again for joining as always. Uh, we will catch you next time until then, uh, stay safe, stay sanctions free. And we'll talk to, we'll talk to everybody soon. Stay sanctions free, everybody. We'll see you next time with some, some help from our friends. All right. Bye everybody.